If you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Um, there's a handful of verses in the Bible that we're kind of so familiar with that I, I think we, we don't really hear them um, or we don't hear kind of like what surrounds them in a way that's actually helpful. I think this is one of those verses. So I think you'll see what I mean here in a second. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you've been around church very long, you're very familiar with the very next verse. Something about going to all the world and discipleship. We're, we're very familiar with that. In fact, the next verse sort of forms the basis for our mission here at Woodbury, that we are to develop disciples. So we try to use that language a lot. And it's the next verse. And so sometimes in an excitement to get to the, uh, the main entree, we skip over verse 16. We don't really pay attention to, or excuse me, verse 18. We don't really pay attention to uh, what's going on in that verse. It's kind of like I think if everybody, if we were to ask everybody, they know John 3, 16, but nobody really knows John 3, 15. It kind of gets like lost in the shuffle because John 3, 16 takes up all the, uh, the attention. So I want to slow down and I want to look at Matthew 28, uh, 18 again. He's made the 11, remember there were 12 and there's one missing. What happened to that guy? He's made the 11 hike from Jerusalem to Galilee, it's around 100 miles. It would have taken a while. This isn't just like, hey, will you meet me down the street? This is 100 miles to this special mountain, this special place. And then he comes to them and he gathers them together and he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's the same word as power, authority, power. Um, I wonder if this authority idea doesn't neatly fit into our relationship with God. If there's not a really good place for it to go. Love, yeah, God loves me, Jesus loves me, we sing a song, yeah, we totally get that. It makes sense. Mercy, grace, sure, of course, yeah, I'm all about that. That sounds wonderful. Um, life lessons, you know, just like verses that we like, absolutely. Authority, I don't know. I'm not sure that that's something that springs into mind in our top ten ideas of who Jesus is in terms of our relationship to him. And I think part of the problem is humans have a tricky relationship with authority. It's just, it's not always super great. And, I, and maybe I should be more accurate and I should say, um, American humans have a tricky relationship with authority. Kids, when they're young, they wanna grow up and they, they think in their minds, man, when I get older, I'm not gonna have a bedtime, I'm gonna have dessert for dinner, dessert all the time. And then what happens when you grow up? You get tired at 8.30. And even looking at sugar gives you diabetes. Like, it's just life's cruel joke. A lot of adults, they want to start their own business because they want to be their own boss. That's exactly what they say. I want to be my own boss. I don't want to answer to anyone. Well, what is that? That's a tricky relationship with authority. I mean, for some of us, it's so bad that if we were going to do something and then someone tells us to do that thing, we would then not do that thing. We would defy our own self-interests because we didn't want to be told what to do because we have a tricky relationship with authority. I mean, it's just sort of the way it is. In fact, I think this is kind of interesting. Anytime that there is an appeal to authority, it means something has gone wrong. 
So anytime somebody says a phrase like this, for example, if somebody, if you're working at a restaurant and someone says, let me speak to your manager, it's never going to be like you go get your manager and they want to compliment you. There's something has gone wrong there. If a parent and a teenager are having some sort of conflict and the parent says, this is my house, and as long as you're in my house, you will live by my rules. That's an appeal to authority, but it doesn't mean that the relationship is really good in that moment. That's just sort of like the bottom level, uh, basic sort of connection that a parent might have with their child. Um, nobody says, call 911 so we can tell them everything's really good here right now. Nobody does that. Anytime you appeal to these sorts of authorities or these sorts of powers, it's because something has gone wrong. And, and it's just, it's wild to me. So I don't necessarily think it's always bad to question authority. I was thinking about the fact that we have a whole genre of, of music that's sort of like anti-authoritarian. You can go all the way back as far as Woody Guthrie, and they were making protest songs, and Bob Dylan was making protest songs, and Public Enemy is making protest songs. You guys don't even know who Public Enemy is, but yeah, fight the power. That's the, that's the song. We have a whole genre of music that's anti-authority because of who we are. That's sort of uniquely American. So we have a tricky relationship with authority. So when Jesus comes along and he says, hey, all authority has been given to me, I think some of us are like, I'm not exactly sure what to do with that aspect of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not sure where to put that. Our culture doesn't have a place for this, and our theology doesn't have a comfortable place for this. If you look at Matthew 28, 18, it's at the very end of this book, and I think we might think of it as sort of an epilogue to the story. You've been following along, Jesus was born and all that stuff, and then he grew up and he taught the Sermon on the Mount, and there's all these things happening. He was crucified, he was resurrected, and then you get to this little end of the story, like maybe kind of the end of the movie where they're just sort of wrapping up, and so-and-so did this, and so-and-so went on to do this. It's just sort of the epilogue. I think we think of it that way. But I actually think Matthew 28, 18 is kind of the high point of the entire Bible, I think it might be the point in the movie where like the music swells and it's like reaches this crescendo. I think it's like the point in Handel's Messiah where you get to the hallelujah chorus and the crowd just gets so into it. They stand to their feet because this is a high point in the story, not of Jesus, but a high point in the story of scripture. Now, maybe you didn't see it when Jesus said all authority. How many of you remember the family circus cartoon where the kid you know, is told to do something, and then there's this dotted line going all over the panel because he's just gone on, done all these things before he does what he's supposed to do. I want you to imagine that idea, the dotted line. Imagine there's a dotted line going through the entirety of Scripture from the very beginning, and it brings us to this moment. I don't know that we think of the fact that there is a capital S story in the stories of the Bible. But I think it's so profound and valuable that we notice this, this theme, this narrative thread running through the entire scripture. Because human history is a little bit of a cliche. You know what I mean? I loved history class when I was a kid, but it's a little bit of a cliche because this is what happens in human history. Humans grasp for power or authority. They abuse that power. They hurt others and they make a general mess of things. And then another group comes along and says, this isn't going to do. So they grasp for authority violently and they 
amass authority and power, and then they end up abusing that power and make a general mess of things. And it's just wash, rinse, repeat. Human history, a hamster wheel, just over and over and over. You can go back, you can look at just any element of human history. Genghis Khan, the Crusades, the Cold War, it's all the same thing, over and over and over. It's different characters, but it's the same story. We haven't been able to figure out a different story than just this one. It's a cycle. In fact, the story of scripture is kind of the same way too. Humans make a mess of things, right? At the beginning, in the garden, everything's perfect. And humans come along and say, you know what? Here's an opportunity for imperfection. I'm gonna go ahead and take that. And then God intervenes, but in the very beginning, in the very beginning of the story, he literally says, there will come a time where I will send someone to, to fix this, to make it better. In chapter two of the Bible, someone's coming. And in that passage, he calls, it, he calls that person the offspring. He tells Eve, there will come an offspring and he will crush Satan's head from the very beginning of the Bible. So at each point in this story, whether it's the garden, the flood, the exodus, judges, kings, exile, it's humans make a mess. God intervenes. He promises to send someone to fix everything. It's that same cycle. But in the garden, I'm going to send an offspring. In Exodus, he says, I'm going to send a prophet, an ultimate prophet. By the time you get to Israel having kings, it's a monarchy. And he says, I'm going to send a king, a descendant of David, a, a, a child of Abraham. And then eventually the Bible kind of settles on this language of monarchy to describe this figure. And the Bible uses a word that you're familiar with. It uses the word Messiah. It's a Hebrew word for future king. It's the, the actual ceremony. When a guy was about to become king, they would do the ceremony, pour some oil on his head. That's what Messiah means, anointed, anointed one. Many of you are familiar with that language. An anointed one is coming. But then you get to the end of the Hebrew Bible and the story doesn't resolve. It's kind of like one of those annoying movies. Have you ever been to a movie and it's like, it doesn't have a happy ending and you're like, I, why did I watch this? Why did I waste two hours of my life? It needs to have a happy ending. It, everything needs to wrap up. There needs to be a triumphant score, credits roll, and I leave the theater feeling good. But you would get to the end of the book of Malachi. You get to the end of the Hebrew Bible and it's not, it's not happy. It's not a happy story. It just kind of ends and it's designed that way. Now, just super quick aside, modern Christians have this terrible, terrible habit of dismissing the Old Testament. We don't like anything old. If you have two products on the shelf and one is new and improved and one is old and decrepit, you're always going to pick the new and improved. And so when we have the Old Testament, we're like, I don't, why do I want the Old Testament? That's old. I don't need that. And so I often try to use the language Hebrew Bible because it's not, we shouldn't dismiss it. Imagine that you uh, were in your single life and you were dating and you, met, you found somebody and you're like, hey, this person could be the one and maybe they're the one for me and you're getting to know them. You're going on dates. You're on some coffee date. Imagine that person started telling uh, or you started telling that person a story about your childhood. You started telling them about some incident that happened when you were a kid that shaped you and made you who you are. And imagine that person said, stop talking right there. I don't want to hear anything from before I met you. From before I met you, none of that applies. But that's what we do with the Hebrew Bible. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have anything to do with it. You know how much stuff there is in the New Testament that, that just goes right over our heads because we're not familiar with the language that the people who wrote the Hebrew Bible were using? It's like we're reading or watching the third movie in a trilogy, and we haven't watched the first two. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen Inception, the movie Inception. It's a little bit of a trippy movie. It's weird. The timing is very strange. You sh it's fascinating, but you, it's, it's hard to follow. 
My wife watched the movie Inception, but she watched the second half of the movie one time, and then later she watched the first half of the movie. And she's like, this movie isn't very good. I didn't like it. It doesn't make sense. Well, it hardly makes sense if you watch it front, beginning to end. Of course it's not going to make sense if you watch the second half first. If you simply are just like, I'm just going to read the New Testament, the New Testament's for me, you're going to miss so much. Now, can you be a disciple of Jesus Christ and only ever crack open the New Testament? Yes. Lots of disciples throughout human history didn't even have access to a Bible, much less the Old Testament or New Testament. So yes, of course, but man, there is so much depth there. All right, that's the PSA. It's over. We'll uh, move on. So the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you wind through the dotted line of the Old Testament. You wind through the story of the, the flood, and you wind through the story of the, the, the exodus, and you wind through the story of the, king, the judges and the kings, and you get to the exile, and it just is like, and then finally they're kind of coming back to Jerusalem, and it just like sort of ends, and you're like, what? I read a thousand pages, and this is just, it just ends? What is this about? I mean, they keep talking about, hey, one's going to come. There's this Messiah that's going to come. A Messiah's coming. A Messiah's coming. A Messiah's coming. And then the story ends. You're like, ah, this is frustrating. Then you follow the dotted line into the gospel of Matthew. And look at what Matthew says in chapter 1, verse 1. Have you ever um, been to one of those restaurants on your birthday where they, uh, you know, if you tell the employees it's your birthday, they'll all come and surround your table. They'll put a goofy hat on you and they'll sing happy birthday to you. You ever done that? It's always fun for everybody who is not the one wearing the hat. Everybody else enjoys that. But it's not very subtle. Like everybody in the audience or everybody in the, in the restaurant, yeah, I'll clap, happy birthday, you know, but it, it's not very subtle. It's not like there's this like, oh, happy birthday, hope, you know, hope you had a good birthday. It's very like, you know, noisy and loud and very unsubtle. What's the opposite of unsubtle? Matthew chapter one, verse one. So where's this story going? God, the story of the Messiah. Matthew says, well, I'll pick up the thread here. I'll pick up the dotted line. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Some of your translations will say Christ. That's just the Greek word for Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how subtle Matthew is. Matthew's like, hey guys, remember that story we've been talking about for thousands of years about the Messiah? I'm about to tell you the rest of that story. Oh, okay, this is good. And this is why, this is totally aside, this is why I kind of think it would be helpful if the Gospels were at the end of the Old Testament, and then, you know, you get to, like, uh, Acts, and that would start the New Testament, but whatever, that's my own, my own thing. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Mary was the mother of Jesus. Oh, who, by the way, is called the Messiah. So here's Matthew. He's like, he's really trying to push this narrative. Matthew 1, 17. 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Matthew, are you trying to tell me something? And, and this is cool. I know, I know some of you are like history. That's my least favorite subject. But this is kind of awesome. You are seeing the culmination of thousands of years of human history, of God's interaction with human history in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. You're seeing this all come to fruition. You're following that dotted line, that narrative line. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches. He concludes his sermon with this line, verse 36. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way, both Lord and Messiah. And the crowd goes, oh, what? And they say, what do we do? And then 3,000 people get baptized. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says, they, the apostles, never stopped teaching and proclaiming, listen to this, the gospel that Jesus was the Messiah. 
the future king, the coming king. Acts chapter 17, verse 3, Paul told the crowd that Jesus was the Messiah, and this crowd reacted differently. They all gasped, but instead of getting baptized, they tried to kill him, and it started a riot, and Paul had to get out of there. When they declared that Jesus was the king, Jesus was the Messiah, people reacted. It was news. If I ran into Target right now and I said, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, what would people do? They would look at me and then they would go back to their shopping. Maybe security would eventually escort me out for disrupting what was going on. But you know, nobody would get baptized. I wouldn't stand in that front of that target, Jesus is the Messiah, and I wouldn't have people rush and say, what do we need to do? You need to get baptized. That wouldn't happen. I wouldn't start a riot. It wouldn't start a riot if I declared that Jesus is the Messiah. But this news that Jesus is the king throughout human history caused reactions. But today, no reaction. You know what I suspect might be the problem? This is just just me. I suspect that people who claim to follow Jesus as the king, but don't actually live as if Jesus is the king, have kind of muted the truth about Jesus being the king. It doesn't really mean anything because they can look at us and they say, well, it doesn't really affect their lives. I think that's a problem. I think this news is dangerous because it should impact us and it should impact the people to whom we share it, with whom we share it. So I think we should ask, what should that claim mean? What should it mean? Patrick, you say it's dangerous. Well, what should it mean? What should, how should my life look different than it is right now? That's a fair question. Jesus wasn't crucified because he was telling people to love their neighbors. We should love our neighbors, but that's not why Jesus was crucified. Nobody really got too bent out of shape about that. Jesus wasn't hung on the cross because he was advocating for peace and and love and kindness and grace and mercy or justice. That's not why they hung him on the cross. Look at the language of the execution of Jesus. Matthew 26, 67, the religious leaders, Hebrew religious leaders, they beat Jesus. And then they said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? You see what they're so angry about? What are they making fun of him for? Oh, you think you're the king? Okay. You think you're the prophet that Moses talked about? Okay. You think you're the offspring that God told Eve to expect? Okay. Who hit you, buddy? Yeah, this guy can't do anything. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Jesus stands before the Roman governor. So, uh, you're the king of Jews, Pilate says. Jesus says, you're the one? Words came out of your mouth. Matthew 27, 17, Pilate stands before the crowd. This is the Hebrew crowd, and he says, okay, guys, <laughs> we're going to release somebody. Should it be, this is cool, should it be Jesus Barabbas? He had the same name. Can you imagine that? He, should it be Jesus Barabbas? Or should it be Jesus, and he literally says, Jesus the king? And the crowd says, let go of that Jesus Barabbas guy. Kill Jesus the king guy. That's why he was killed. And then on the cross, over his head, hung the charge. This is Matthew chapter 20. Uh, 27 for 31 and the charge on the sign over the cross said this is jesus king of the jews that's why they killed him when uh when i was growing up i wanted to be an nba player a national basketball association player now in my case uh the only thing that held me back was a general lack of talent and skill and ability and athleticism but other than that i think it probably could have happened for me 
There was one time in my life where I got to play basketball against an actual NBA player. I got to play on the same court. Like, you know, I didn't, like, rush the court at Target Stadium. I actually got to play basketball against this one guy. I was living in Enid, Oklahoma at the time. Me and a bunch of buddies were at the local Y, and this was this NBA player's hometown, and he came into the Y, and he just played pickup basketball with us. Now, there's going to be maybe one person, maybe two people in the entire, uh, on the lawn that knows who this guy is, because uh, his name was Brent Price. Anybody? Anybody? All right. Oh, okay. Brent Price. And I think probably Paul knows who that is because he also lived in Enid, Oklahoma. But Brent Price walked into the Y. Now, Brent Price played for the Vancouver Grizzlies. Now, some of you are not going to have any clue, but uh, some of you are like, Vancouver Grizzlies. I didn't know there was a, a basketball team in Vancouver. There's not. It was so bad that they packed up and they moved to Memphis after about five years. Brent Price. <laughs> Memphis fans. Brent Price was the worst player on the worst basketball team in the NBA, and he walked into our gym, and a bunch, we were young, athletic, most of us had played organized basketball on some level, and Brent Price was about the same height as me, and let me tell you what, Brent Price, the worst player on the worst NBA team, it was like he was playing against, against a bunch of kindergartners. I mean, we could not do anything. The very worst player on the very worst team is still light years better than a bunch of random nobodies at the gym. And here's the most demoralizing part of all of it, is that he wasn't even trying. <laughs> we were giving it all we got. Can you imagine the amount of clout that you could have if you could say, I beat an NBA player? Which one? Don't worry about it. I beat an NBA player? What team do you play for? Don't worry about it. It's not important. We, he wasn't even trying, and he just demolished all of us. It could have been one against nine instead of five on five. He wasn't even trying. The Roman Empire, at the time of Christ, was the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. They just destroyed their enemies. They moved into a country and people could put up a resistance, but resistance was futile because they just steamrolled everybody and they came in and they set up their own authority. They set up their own kings and they had set up these, these puppet kings even in Israel. And, and there had been some Israelite people who said, you know what, we got to take these Romans down and Rome would just come in and crush them. They had the biggest army. They had the mightiest everything. Rome was the world power. You would think that the Roman Empire could handle executing one Jewish carpenter from the little small town of Nazareth. Rome should be able to handle that. They had taken down empires. Rome should be able to take down this one Jesus and put him in the ground and keep him in the ground. Yeah. But Jesus walked out of the tomb... Roman soldiers at his feet, he just shrugged them off like they're nobody. Like they're nobody. He just walked out of the tomb like he was an NBA player playing with a bunch of young 20-year-olds who didn't know what they were doing. He shrugged off the Roman Empire. Jesus walked out of that tomb, and he just shrugged off death like it's nothing. Like, oh, nice try, death. I kind of wonder. I don't even know that Jesus was trying that hard when he took down the Roman Empire. 
I don't know that Jesus was even trying that hard when he took down death. And he took these things off like they're nothing. And he told his 11, go meet me on the mountain. And the 11 walked 100 miles to the mountain. And Jesus came to them and he said, hey, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I think those disciples were like, yeah, yes, it has. I mean, this is Easter Sunday stuff. This is good stuff. We couldn't wait seven months to talk about this. But this is so important when we think about who Jesus is, the character of Jesus. Does Jesus love you? Absolutely. Does Jesus show you grace and mercy? Absolutely. Is Jesus almighty and all powerful? Yes, he is. And if that authority doesn't have a place to go in our relationship with God, then we have the wrong idea of who Jesus is. All authority has been given to me. The Apostle Paul would later describe it like this. This is such good language in Colossians 2.15. He talks about what happened. He says, you wouldn't believe it, guys. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. He humiliated the Roman Empire, he humiliated the Hebrew religious leaders. He humiliated evil and death. He walked out of the tomb and the score was a thousand uh, and death and evil in Rome, zero. And the crowd went wild. This is unbelievable. There were no categories for any of this, nowhere to put any of this. And he says, all authority has been given to me. The cycle of human history is supposed to be humans make a mess of things, wash, rinse, repeat, hamster wheel over and over and over. And Jesus calls his apostles and he says, hey, there is a way off that cycle. If you continue to listen to the authorities of this world, you are gonna perpetuate that cycle. If you continue to do what everybody has always done throughout human history, you're just gonna keep that cycle going. Yeah. Or you can get off on the exit ramp and you can follow me because all authority has been given to me. I think, uh, I think we're friends, right? On the lawn, I, I like you guys. So I just, I, I just want to say what I'm about to say. With uh, well, just remember, we're friends. <laughs> if you truly believe that Jesus shrugged off Rome and death, if you truly believe that He is King and Messiah, what should your reaction to COVID? politics, social unrest, economic uncertainty, internet conspiracies, racial tension, rioting. If you believe Jesus has all authority, what should your reaction to those things be? Spoiler alert, he's gonna tell us in the next few verses. This is what I want you to hear, is that the crucial transaction of a disciple is not to say, oh yeah, I'll give this Jesus thing a shot. You know, I'll give him 90 days. And if he can improve my life in 90 days, then good to go. That's not the transaction of discipleship. The transaction of discipleship is that disciples bow the knee before the Messiah. That is the transaction. Yeah. And if we walk around like, I know I'm king of the world. I'm king of my own domain. And Jesus is like, I have all authority. I mean, I'll let you live that illusion for a while, but there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Donald Trump is not going to save you. Joe Biden 
is not going to save you. Right. You can put your hopes in a political party, in a candidate, in an ideology, but they will not save you. I think you should exercise your constitutional right to vote. Absolutely. I think you should inform yourself about our political situation. Absolutely. But I think you should remember that you answer to a higher authority. Right. That Jesus has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. What, what would your family look like if dads here in the, in, on the lawn decided... I'm going to bow the knee to Jesus. What, what would your children, what transformation would your children see in your life if, if you were dedicated in allegiance to Jesus? What would your employers and, and your, your spouses, what would that look like if you said, I bow the knee to Jesus as a disciple? I'm not just giving this a shot until I decide there's something better. I bow the knee to Jesus. What would what would your employer see differently in you? What would your coworkers see differently in you? What, what what transformation would our church see if we were disciples and we were just fully allegiant and dedicated to the fact that Jesus has all authority? We're going to um, talk about this in more detail next week, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get maybe a little uncomfortably practical, but I think this is the first thing that we need to talk about. I, I did a lot of thinking and praying about, like, what, do we, what sort of things should we preach on a Sunday after we've had a big church meeting, and maybe some people are feeling unsettled and uncertain, and they don't know if they agree with everything that's going on. I think we need to get back, right back down to square one and understand that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And our relationship with Jesus Christ is defined by Jesus having taken out the powers and principalities and authorities and declared that he has all authority. Yeah. That's what it's all about. I, I'm not going to tell anybody here who to vote for or who to support or what ideological uh, position to take or what to post on your Facebook page. I don't, you, know, you, you do you. I try to avoid Facebook because it makes me annoyed. But I just want you to know that first and foremost, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, above anything and everything else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. We're grateful for this reminder of reality. God, I know sometimes we start thinking that we're, we're here to do our own thing. We're here to call our own shots. But I pray that we, right here on this lawn, on this day, would determine that we would bow the knee to the authority that is Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be disciples who live as if he has cast off death, has cast off evil, has cast off powers, and that we would get off the cycle of human history and follow him. Lord, we proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. We pray for your spirit to help us live like that is true. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.